Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, it's wonderful to have you all here. You know, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year coming, and uh, it's wonderful to have you here. I haven't had an opportunity to speak about the coming of Messiah, uh, the birth of Messiah, if you will. I like to think of it, the event, as the incarnation of the Messiah. So this last Shabbat of 2014, it's amazing that this year has gone by, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing. Didn't think I'd endure. Didn't think I'd be here. But here I am. And some of us, more seriously, may have thought, didn't know that I'd be here. But here you are this morning, healthy and well and enduring and ready to worship and celebrate our Lord. I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 4 because as I think about the prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah... Can't get into all the things I'd love to share with you in the next few moments, but you know, there are four types of prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, but we can't really talk about that this morning. There are four different ways in which the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, the New Testament writers interpret Messianic prophecy, but we can't talk about that this morning either. But what we can talk about are the four different ways, themes, about which Messianic prophecy speaks of the coming of Messiah. To do that, I want to focus on one particular uh, imagery that the scriptures use, and that is is the imagery of the ha-tzamach, the branch. And when one looks at these prophecies concerning the branch of the Lord, there are four images of Messiah that this particular uh, way in which Messiah is presented to us is depicted. And I wanted to share the, that with you. Part of the reason I wanted to share that with you is because on Christmas Eve, Beverly and Paul invited me over to Bel Air Press, Presbyterian Church. And so I went and had the most wonderful time celebrating with the believers that were there. Met some really neat people, and that was a lot of fun. Saw some of our folks that were there. Josh and his family were there. Nikki Havisey, who comes to our Messianic Prayer Breakfast on Wednesday, she was there. So it was great to connect with some of these folks. Had a chance to meet the pastor, which was a real blessing. Met another fellow who was uh, a producer, the fellow who produced like uh, Amazing Grace, And it was kind of cool talking with him, getting to know him. And he's showing me uh, the stained glass windows from his father's church in Santa Monica that are placed in uh, Bel Air Press. So it was really kind of neat to have that sort of full-orbed kind of experience. And I love the pastor's message. 
It was a very simple kind of presentation, but it struck me, it struck a chord with me as I began to think more deeply about what he had shared. And he was talking about getting gifts and presents on Hanukkah or in his context on Christmas. And he said, you know, he was talking about how when you begin to open those gifts or the gifts are presented, you know, we get very excited about opening them. Once they're opened, you know, it's sort of like, okay, what's the next one? And it made me think of all the instruments in my life that I've had. I still have my 67 Ludwig kick, you know, in my garage when I was growing up learning how to play drums. And uh, I remember all these different instruments. I said, oh, you know what I really would love this year is, you know, this guitar or that guitar. Then after I got it, you know, there it was on my shelf, you know, hanging on my wall or whatever it is, used now and again. And that's true about everything, right? You know, all the things that we kind of love and look forward to, uh, they sort of get stale, they grow empty because they're only momentary, you know. He was talking about the fact that how we get excited in opening the gifts, and then when the gift is open, we look for the next gift. But he said, Messiah is a gift, and, but opening Messiah doesn't grow stale, or at least if it does, it's mainly because of us, not because of the gift, you know. And so he said, the more that you probe this gift of Messiah the more you realize how little you know of this gift. And so it forces you to probe more deeply into who he is. And the more you probe deeply into who he is, the more you begin to get a picture of who we are. So it's kind of an interesting idea, don't you think? That as you peel away the paper wrapping of Messiah, we think that we know some things about him when we study a little bit of his words. You know, I've known the Lord now 43 years. And I can remember priding myself in, oh, I know this. Oh, I understand this. I remember, in fact, the first Bible I had. It wasn't a fancy schmancy Bible. It was just a revised standard Bible. But I had a tract that was given to me, a pamphlet that was given to me. I think it was from the American Tract Society. And it was prophecies that were fulfilled by Messiah. And so this Bible that I had was not a reference Bible. So I took the track and I looked up the Hebrew scriptures under, or I didn't underline it, but I had a blue pencil that I just uh, colored the verse. And then in pen, I'd write the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant passage, where that is found in fulfillment. And then I'd go there and I'd use a red pencil and I would color that passage, and then I'd put the passage in ink back to the Hebrew scriptures that I looked at. And I remember as I'm studying this thing, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm really getting a handle on this. And it took me maybe six months to a year to finish this whole thing out as I was studying it. And when it was done, I heard this stirring, stirring, stirring in my heart, in my innermost being, that said, I want you to give that Bible to your good friend, Stephen Brower, with whom I was in, this is high school, I came to faith when I was 11th grade, that I was in this like band with. And I said, I can't do that, you know? I mean, I worked really hard on this thing. I mean, I had it all color-coded, penciled in, I had everything, and now I felt inside, you know? It wasn't like an audible voice, but there was just this relentless, I want you to give this to your friend, Stephen Brower. So I did, eventually, eventually. So I did, I gave, I said, Stephen, man, I said, look, 
you know I've become a believer. Who's a believer? You know I, can, I became a believer in Messiah, and I want you to have this Bible, man, you know. And look what I did in it. I can't believe I'm giving it to you. But here, this is, and he said, gee, I really appreciate that, thanks. And then, you know, our years moved on, and we went into different avenues in our life. He got into a lot of trouble and a, a lot of um, bad things that were going on in his life, but never forgot Stephen. And years went by, and then my wife and I, we moved. I guess we were in Annapolis or Massachusetts at the time. And we drove back to visit with my family that was still in this town. I'm from Jersey, so it was in northern Jersey. And after we visited with my family, we're leaving. And we stopped by uh, a deli because I wanted to get like a, uh, a bagel and coffee for the road. So I go in and I see, you know, it's a long line. And I see at the front of the line a fellow that I knew was Stephen right off the bat. I just walked in and he had like a hoodie on, you know, and couldn't see the back of him. But just the way he stood, I said, oh, my goodness, I haven't seen him in years. And I said, here he is. And so I waited in the back for him to get his stuff And he comes walking out. His head was bowed down. He was living on the streets at that time. He had gone through a lot of challenges in his life. And I tapped him on the shoulder. He looks up and he looked at me and he said, oh, my goodness. You know, we hugged each other and so on. And we got caught up a little bit. And I said, what's going on in your life? And he's telling me. And he was kind of embarrassed because of how his life had taken this terrible turn. And I said, oh, Mary Lou, my wife, was his boyfriend when they were like, in elementary school, you know, <laughs> or middle school. And so I said, Stephen, you got to see Mary Lou, man. She's in the car. And you got to see our son, Joel. And he goes, no, 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 I can't. I'm just too embarrassed. I don't want her to see me like this. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm just so glad I saw you. My heart just like went nuts because I saw him. I was about ready to cry because I hadn't seen him in years. And I love this guy so much. And he says, hey, I want to tell you something. I want to show you something. He reaches into his backpack. And it's so mind-blowing to me. Even now, as I think, as he reaches into his backpack and he says, I want to show you something. And he hands me the Bible that I had given to him when we were in high school together. And he said, you know, I read this every day and I'm trying to get my life together and I'm trying to live for God now. And I was just, you know, it just made me think, God does great things, even when they appear so small and insignificant, and even when we are so reluctant to be responsive to him. And yet here was God's word still in this person's life. He's gone, and he had died shortly after. But I pray that he came to know the Lord, and it would be really neat if he did, and to find out that it had something to do, something to do with the Bible that I had given him and the underlinings and markings that, <laughs> that he had read. But that started me on a quest to study Messianic prophecy. 43 years later, I still find so many neat things to learn about it. And I realized so many things I thought were right were not so right. And there's just this continual growing and immersing myself in this stuff. And it never grows old. It's like the pastor said, the more you unfold him, the more you unfold his word, it becomes more enriching and meaningful and significant. And the more your life is thereby changed by it, even when you're resistant, you know, God is sovereign. You can only resist so much. And eventually 
he wins, <laughs> you know, he wins. And even when we read the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, he wins. doesn't matter what resistance, what enemies come against, whatever his plans and purposes are. The bottom line is he wins. And so it's a good thing to surrender to the winner, you know, and acknowledge him as such. Now, if you turn with me, looking at some of these prophecies that I remember from years gone by, but I've come to appreciate more and more the more I look at them. Let me just show you this survey because I want to think about the coming of our Messiah. I didn't have opportunity to speak on it earlier, so I'd like to do that this morning. In Isaiah chapter 4, it's just one of these rich passages that speak of the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom. And if you look at verse 2, he says, In that day the branch, the tzamach, And you notice it's in capital letters because whenever the word branch, the Hebrew word tzamach, is used, it's always used of Messiah. And therefore, the English translators always give us a capital B because they realize this is an image. This is just a picture of one who is to come. So when he says, in that day, the branch of the Lord, he means the Messiah of Israel. And look what he says about the Messiah. The day is going to come when he will be beautiful. Isaiah later is going to say that we couldn't recognize him. His form was so marred. We couldn't even recognize what he looked like. And now we're being told he's going to be beautiful. Not only is he going to be beautiful, but he's going to be glorious. He's going to be shining forth in all of his brilliance as Lord of the universe, as Lord of lords and King of kings. You know, it was Peter, James, and John that only got a bare glimpse of his glory on the Mount of the Transfiguration. You remember that in Matthew chapter 16, 17 or so, where they come up to the mountain, most likely Mount Hermon in the north, the tallest mountain in the land of Israel, about 9,000 feet above sea level or so. And it's there that Messiah is transfigured where he is most gloriously seen during his ministry while on earth. And Peter, James, and John have a glimpse into his glory. Not unlike Moses, who saw something of the backside of the glory of God. And when he showed him his glory, that is when God showed Moses his glory, he had him go into the very inner recesses of the cave. He put him way back in the back of the cave and behind a niche in that cave. And then when he came before the opening, that is when God manifests himself before the opening of the cave, he put his hand over the, over the covering. So that the glory that Moses would see would not be so pervasive and powerful that it would harm him. And yet with all of those precautions, when he comes out, he's shining so greatly that the people of Israel feared. And that he had to cover his face because the glory was just too much to behold. The glory that Peter, James, and John saw was veiled even more greatly But Isaiah is telling us there's coming a day when he will be beautiful and glorious like we have never seen or no one has ever seen before. And he he says, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. He's talking about that faithful remnant, the Jewish people who at the time of Messiah's appearing will enter the kingdom with him. And thus will be see the fruit of the land and the results of all of his glory. He says in verse 3, those who are left, that's the faithful remnant. Those who remain, the faithful remnant in Jerusalem. They will be called holy. 
all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord, look what he will do. The Lord is going to wash away all the filth of Zion, the people of Zion, the daughters of Zion, the women of Zion. He will cleanse Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and of fire and burning. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion, that's the Temple Mount, and over those who assemble there. Look at this, the Shekinah glory appears, a cloud of smoke by day, a glowing flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat and day and refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. That's the first reference we have to the branch. And it speaks of what will occur when he comes in his glory, when he establishes his kingdom. But there are other things that the scripture says about the branch of the Lord that pertain to both his first and second coming. So turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah. There's only a few passages I'm going to have you turn to, so have no fear. We will... Some have said, you're just flying through these things. Come on, you know, write them down at least for us. But there's only going to be a few. So Jeremiah 23 is a great passage about the false shepherds that scatter the sheep. In contrast to Yeshua, who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so when we look at Jeremiah 23, verse 5, we learn of this good shepherd. Look what we're told. The days are coming. That's just like what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be glorious. Now look what he says here. Those days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. There's the word Samach again. There's the capital B. Same word. Now we know we're not just talking about anyone. We're talking about the Messiah of Israel. But look how the Messiah is made reference to. He's a descendant of David. So now we know that the Messiah is a human being. We now are introduced to some degree, though, though only limited, with respect to his humanity. And we're told something of his pedigree. That when he comes into Israel, when he comes into our world, he will come as a man. And when he comes as a man, he's going to come through the tribe of Judah and the lineage and family of David. All of that is being seen right here. In other words, the Messiah is not just going to descend from the clouds of heaven and appear among us. He will do that as a second coming, but his initial coming will not just be God coming down from the skies. He's going to be born through a family. And the family he will be born through is David. And because he's born through the family of David, he is therefore born through the tribe of Judah. Which means because he's from the tribe of Judah, he's from the lineage of Abraham, which means he's a Jew. And that also means he came from Adam to some degree. That's why the Brit Hadashah will refer to him as the second Adam, the last Adam. Because he is a man. But he's not just a man. Here, he's a king who will sit on the throne of his father, David. So the branch, while he will one day be glorious and beautiful, he's Israel's king. He's Israel's ultimate king. Now, if you turn again, keep your finger there and turn to Zechariah. Now, as we move through Zechariah, you're going through the major prophets of Ezekiel. Daniel is in there. 
And we're coming to like Zephaniah, Joel, Amos. And we're coming to the second to the last of the minor prophets. The book of Zechariah. God remembers. And we're looking at Zechariah chapter 3. And here Zechariah has a vision. Verse 1. He sees Joshua, who's the high priest, standing before, get this, the angel of the Lord. We don't have time to get into who the angel of the Lord is. But he stands unique with regard to the angelic sphere. Even though he's referred to as an angel, I myself believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah of Israel. That is to say, the Messiah as he appears before his birth in Bethlehem. Pre-incarnate, before his incarnation at Bethlehem. But look, he stands before the angel of the Lord and the evil one. And the evil one is there to do what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Night and day, he accuses the brethren. Night and day, he accuses you before God. And many times, his accusations are true. Sometimes they're false. But it doesn't matter about his accusations, as long as the Messiah of Israel is standing next to you to say, I covered that one, I covered that one, I covered that one. Ad infinitum, so that whatever the accusation, it's already covered, it's taken care of. So what we find in chapter 3 is, the Lord says to the evil one, because the angel of the Lord, the Messiah, is to his side, he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, isn't that weird? The Lord says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Why does he just say, I rebuke you? But it says, the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. So I think... And like I said, you know, it's just my thought. I think the one speaking is the Messiah of Israel. Saying to the evil one, the Lord, before whom they stand, rebuke you. But he's referred to as the Lord. Because that's the mystery of our Messiah. And we haven't even gotten into the Brit Hadashah. We haven't looked at the New Testament scriptures. We're just in in the book of Zechariah. We only went a couple of verses in chapter 3. And we're already confronted with a very unique expression. The Lord said to him, the Lord rebuke you. So I think it's the angel of the Lord, the Messiah, who's alongside Joshua, who says to the evil one, the Lord, before whom we stand, rebuke you. This is not unlike what David says in the Psalms. When David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, David doesn't have any other lords. Because he's the king of Israel. He's the Lord over everyone in Israel. So who is David's Lord? And David says, the Lord, that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, said to my Lord. But who's David's Lord? And Yeshua in the New Testament tells us he's talking about him. Who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the Messiah? Who is the branch? So it's the very same kind of weirdness. You know, same kind of strangeness. Same kind of unpredictable and unexpected kinds of statement. It's not unlike what we read in the book of Genesis. When the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding villages are destroyed. When the destruction is described, you may or may not have ever noticed this, but I think it's Genesis 18, 19 or so. It says, the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord who is in heaven. 
So who rained down the fire and brimstone? The Lord. But who then is the Lord who is in heaven from which the fire and brimstone descended? Well, that's because, as you remember in Genesis 18, three men appear to Abraham. One of them, Abraham addresses as the Lord, sacred name of God. And then two depart. One stays with Abraham, and Abraham says to the Lord, if there are 50 in the city righteous, will you destroy it? He says, no. What if there's 40, 30, 20, 10? He says, even if there are 10, I won't destroy it. Unfortunately, there was only one. And so it didn't meet the criteria, and the city is destroyed. Lot was the only one. And then when the destruction occurs, it says the Lord. So the angel of the Lord, the one whom Abraham had spoken to, has now appeared on the scene of the destruction. And he rains down fire and brimstone from the Lord who is in heaven. So these are these funny passages. And here's one here. The Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. But putting that aside for a moment, notice he says... Now Joshua was, verse 3, was clothed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel because he's been accused. And the filthy robes signify, symbolize his sinfulness about which the evil one is accusing him. And so notice what he says. Take off his filthy clothes. And then the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. It doesn't say the Lord took away his sin. It says the angel of the Lord who stood alongside him said, I have taken away your sin. This is really convoluted stuff. So now we're learning that this one is one who will take away the sin of Joshua, the high priest. And who does Joshua represent? Because what are the priests about? They're representatives. The priests in Israel represented God to the people, and they represented the people to God. So when he talks about taking away the filthy robes of Joshua, it is synonymous to saying taking away the sin of Israel. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 11. When the deliverer shall appear, he will take away all ungodliness from Jacob. In Romans eleven twenty six, Who is that deliverer who will take away all ungodliness? The angel of the Lord here. The one alongside Joshua who said, I am going to take away your sin. And so how is sin to be taken away and dealt with? One has to bear it for us. Now, Zechariah doesn't get into how he does it, but he's already telling us your sin can't be dealt with purely by repenting of it. Your sin can't be dealt with purely by confessing it. Your sin can't be dealt with purely by admitting it. One has to bear it for us. That's the grace of God. One has to take it away from us. Otherwise, we're just spouting words. Someone has to cleanse us of our sin. Someone has to remove our sin from us. And therefore, Messiah had to take it away from us, which is what he says to Joshua. Now, look what he says. He doesn't just take away our sin, but then he puts a clean turban on his head 
And they put a clean turban and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by giving acquiescence to it. He's approving it. He's leading it. He's commanding it. He's, he is doing it. Those are doing it under his tutelage and over, under his guidance. Then look at this. Then the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. And this is an interesting charge that we ought to think about if we have had our sins taken away. He says to Joshua, this is what the Lord says, If you will walk in my ways, keep my requirements, then you will govern my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among the standing here. In other words, if we expect God to use us, here in a very specific case, but if we expect God to use us, we must walk before him. We must walk like him. We must walk and live our lives as he would have us to live them. We must live empowered by him. Now listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates who are all seated here. Now he's going to tell them something rather spectacular. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Here's the third time now we're seeing the word Samach, branch, capital again. In Jeremiah, he's a descendant of David, the coming king. In Zechariah, he's a servant who takes away the sin of the people. He actually, the king is a servant. Have you ever heard such a thing? The king serves us. And he serves us by removing our sin from us and clothing us with his spirit in order to make us more like him. And to make us, or to enable us thereby, to serve him. Because you have to serve him in the beauty of of holiness. The psalmist says that. Psalm 29. Worship the Lord in the splendor, New International, beauty of holiness. If you want to serve God, you have to be a holy person. Not a perfect person, but a holy person. Because we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean we don't fail. But it means that God is empowering us and change is happening. Now turn over to Zechariah chapter 6. I'm running out of fingers, but just hold right there. Come over to chapter 6 and look at somewhere around verse 12 or so. In verse 12, Zechariah is told to tell Joshua after certain monies are provided for him. But look at verse 12. This is what the Lord Almighty, notice the sacred name of God. You have all capital letters, sacred name of God. Speaking again about the angel of the Lord, the branch. Here is the man whose name is the branch. There's the word Samach again. It's capitalized again. But notice now, in Jeremiah, he's a king. In Zechariah 3, he's a man who takes away our sin. In Jeremiah 23, he's a king who reigns righteously. By the way, when it speaks about him reigning righteously, it doesn't just mean truthfully. Righteousness in the Hebrew Scriptures doesn't just mean truthfully or accurately. It means compassionately. It means sensitively. It means lovingly. That's why in the synagogues, whenever and in our Hebrew school classes, there was always a box called the tzedakah box, which meant charity. That's how we understood it. Charity not in the sense of benevolence. That's what the word righteousness is, tzaddik, righteousness. It doesn't mean being right. 
It means being compassionate, being sensitive, being caring, thinking of others. When it says that he will reign as a king, it means that he will reign righteously and do justly. It means he'll reign compassionately, caringly, lovingly, as a good shepherd loves the sheep. Not overbearing, making demands as a king. And that's why Peter says that leaders in a congregation are not to lord it over those whom they serve. Because they are to be like their king, who does not rule with an iron fist over his own people, but rather with a shepherd's crook that just guides and gathers and gets back out of harm's way. In Zechariah 3, he's a man who lays down his life and cleanses us of our sin, takes away our sin. Here in Zechariah chapter 6, he is a man. And notice, he will branch out in his place. And look what he does. Here he builds the temple of the Lord. And in case you missed it, verse 13, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty. There's Isaiah chapter 4. He was beautiful and glorious, majestic. Notice he says he will be clothed with majesty. And look, now he's going to sit and rule on his throne. There he is as a king. And he will be a priest on his throne. He's a priest king. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us he's a king, a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king of Jerusalem in Genesis chapter 14. Isn't this kind of stunning stuff? I mean, you just say as a king, he'll sit on his throne. But where does it say any priest sits on a throne? Aaron didn't have a throne. None of the priests had thrones, but this one does. And not only that, no one could build a temple that can really serve him. He must build his own temple. And thus it says, he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, even he will build the temple of the Lord. As a king, he will reign. As a man, he'll lay down his life and cleanse us of sin and take away our sin. As a servant, he will lay down his life. As a man, he will build the temple. And he will reign from the temple. And he will be its high priest, as it were. And now if you turn back one more time to Jeremiah 23... Look at the second part of Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Looking at verse 6. But let's start at verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up to David a righteous branch. There it is again. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Look at verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Look at this. Israel will live in safety. He reunifies Judah and Israel, which has been divided since the time of Solomon. And look at his name. This is the name by which he will be called. The sacred name of God. See that? All, all capital letters. His name is the Lord. And look, not the Lord who is righteous, but the Lord who is our righteousness. Your righteousness is not your own. <laughs> your righteousness is the righteousness of Messiah. First Corinthians, Paul says that he has become for us our righteousness. So whenever you appear righteous, it's because God has showed up in your life and heart. That's why Yeshua will tell us, let your light shine before others that they might see your good works. But what, glorify you? No, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. L.A. has a real problem with that because everybody wants to be acknowledged for what they do. Everybody wants their Oscar. Everybody wants their trophy. Everybody wants their accolation. Everyone wants their hand clap. But what we are to be about is we're to clap for him. 
When you do your good deeds, you do it for him. When you serve him, it is his hands you want to hear clapping. And it's nice for us to clap our hands for you too. But just know every clap you receive from us, you may not receive from him. So when you are deprived of the clap, know one day when you stand before him, you will not be deprived. But the Lord, the sacred name of God. Okay, so let's just recapsulate just some things as we finish this up. The branch of the Lord would be a king who would reign, a descendant of David, who will deal justly and he'll be compassionate, righteous, in the Hebraic sense of the word. He'll be a servant who will take away our sin and clothe us with his own righteousness. He will be a man who will build the temple. By the way, Yeshua certainly was, a, was well trained in building. Because the Greek word, by the way, any of you see the thing on Fox? Fox did a really cool thing on, they had all this archaeological stuff on the birth of Messiah. And in that, they pointed out that the word that is oftentimes translated carpenter, I forget the Greek word now, technon, something like that. The Greek word means builder. doesn't mean carpenter in the Western sense of the word, but builder. Now, if you go to Israel, I mean, the thing you build with is stone. So he was probably a stonemason which means he had a lot of practice and training to build the temple. Not that he needs all that, because he can just say, let there be a temple. (laughs) Just like he can say, let there be light, let there be whatever, and it will be. But if he so chooses, he could say, you know, somebody have my hammer, you know, and you know how carpenters or builders are, don't mess with my tools. And he can say, you know, whoever has it, I'm going to use it to build the temple. But as a man, he builds the temple. He's the high priest of the temple. And he sits on the throne as a priest king. But look at Jeremiah 23, 6. He's, I don't, I always feel funny saying Jehovah or Yahweh. I just don't know what to say. The sacred name of God. He is the sacred name. This is the only place in all the Bible where someone other than God himself And maybe that's not the right way to put it, but someone other than God himself has God's name. There's no other place where someone is called the sacred name of God. Now, some people's names have the short form, like Joel. Yoel means Jehovah is God, sacred name. But it's not the full name. It's only a portion of it. The Hebrew name for God has four letters. This is the only place where all four letters are applied to someone other than God in heaven. Unless, of course, the one who is born of David, who will be a king, is somehow God in heaven. (laughs) Then it's rightly applied to him. But this is the only passage. Is that not kind of astounding? So what is the branch? Here's the fourfold imagery. He's a king. He's a man. He's a servant. And he's God. And so why do we have four Gospels? I believe the Brit Hadashah writers, Jewish writers, were revealing these four images of the branch. Matthew speaks of him as a king, even as Jeremiah 23.5 speaks of him as a king. Mark speaks of him as a servant, even as Zechariah 3 speaks of him as a 
servant. Luke speaks of him as the son of man, a man. Even as Zechariah 6 says he would be a man. And John, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Speaks of him as God, as Jeremiah 23, 6 is. So this imagery of the branch, this tzamach, is unique in every way. He's unique in his birth. He's unique in his person. He's unique in what he does. He's unique in when he comes. This is the one who is born somewhere around this time, but whose birth we celebrate because in coming, he's all of that and he's provided all of that and much more. If you've not availed yourself of him, what are you waiting for? That's why he has come so that you would know him and that you would be known by him so that your sin could be removed and so that a neat life can emerge. And in emerging, he is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are grateful for your word that is new every morning. We're grateful for your word that is filled with such treasures and riches. And we only just peeled away the first layer of our gift. Maybe we've just even touched the ribbon around it and haven't even begun to untie it. But as we unfold your gift through your word, you become more and more and more intriguing and wonderful and beautiful and lovely and mysterious. And as we peel away the trappings around you as our gift, we also come to realize what you have done for us and who we really are in you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your marvelous gift. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh does not even begin to touch what you are worthy of receiving from us. But Father, if we would give you our lives, now that's something. So Lord, I pray that you might speak to each of us. If we've given you our lives, may we live like that. If we have not, may we do that and do that genuinely. We pray this in Messiah's name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.